0: We've been in a uh, series to where uh, we have been looking at uh, the parables of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is that reign and rule of, of God in your life. And so Jesus took some time to try to describe what that means. What is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? and how best to describe it. And he couldn't just describe it in a couple of words, so he told parables, which were stories that that had some uh parts of them that were very familiar with people in their in their everyday work, and he took that story and he put it alongside a spiritual teaching so that it would stick with them and better explain it. And so when he began these parables, he began with the the sower and the seed, talking about the seed that fell in a good soil that produced a, a great harvest. And he told the story about how a man was taking seed and he was sowing it. And some of it hit some hardened path and and it never really was able to get into the soil. And the birds came, picked it up, and took it away. And then some of it, he, he sent it out and it went into some shallow soil. And it, it immediately sprung up some roots, but then the heat came. It didn't get enough water and it just died away. Some of it fell in some soil that were next to some thorns. And as the thorns grew up, at the same time the plant was trying to grow up, and the thorns choked it out, took all the nutrition from it, and killed them. But then there was a fourth soil. It was a good soil. And when the seed hit that soil, it said it multiplied 30, 60, 100-fold, which during that day was incredible because if they could get like a seven return, it was, they were excited. This was 30, 60, 100. They he just let people know that when you sow the seed of the gospel, Everyone's not going to receive the word, and there'll be some that will look like it, but it doesn't stick. And there'll be some where it just gets a hardened heart. But then there will be some that hits that good soil. Then he told him the second parable, is what we call the the wheat and the tares. And he says, just think about that. When a seed was planted, as wheat begins to grow, then there were these tares or weeds that grew right up next to it. And when it came time to getting close to harvest time. Some of the people walked out there and said, hey, you got some weeds here and you got some wheat here. They look a lot alike. Maybe we should pull up some of the tares or the weeds. And he says, no, for fear that if you pull up one, you may get confused as to which is wheat and which is tares. You wait till the judgment for that. And so what we realize that the kingdom of heaven is like wheat that's good for harvest. We live that life of lordship of Christ throughout our whole life. and When the harvest comes, we're prepared for it. But in that, he taught us, he said, it's not our job to judge salvation of others. You got to be careful because you won't be able to see through the eyes like God can see. So then he came and did and the third parable, and he, he talked about that um, there was a mustard seed and there was leaven. And he talked about small beginnings. You take the smallest seed that at that time, and it was a mustard seed. And when you plant that, within weeks, it will grow up to be the largest shrub in the garden. And it's like the kingdom of God, is this small beginning. And so even though there may just be 12 disciples, there may just be 120 people in an upper room praying after Jesus' ascension, he says, this can go worldwide. And it's like leaven or yeast that when you put it in dough, all of a sudden it just begins to explode. And, and no longer is it a flat piece of bread, but it begins to grow and it permeates. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. It just permeates everything, incredible influence. And then last week we, we looked at the next parable where he said, the kingdom of God is like this hidden treasure. And a guy's going in a field and he bumps into it and he's plowing. And all of a sudden he looks down and there's this box of treasure. So he hides it again, goes, sells everything he has, takes the money, buys the field. And in the process, he gets the treasure with it. And he's got an incredible uh, investment here because there's so much more in that treasure than even he paid for in that property. And so it was the surprise finder, a guy that just going through life and all of a sudden he bumps into and he's confronted with the gospel. But then there was that serious seeker, that merchant, who was looking for pearls, looking for the best and greatest pearl. And Jesus told that parable that when he found the pearl, and he called it the pearl of great value, that once he found that pearl, and he'd known because he'd been searching all over the places, this is a keeper. He sold all his other pearls, sold everything he had so he could purchase that pearl of great price And even then he knew that the price he paid for was less than the incredible value that it had. And that the kingdom of God is like that. It is so valuable. It's life transforming. And so he's walked through these and now he's getting ready to close out this teaching time. And as he's ready to close out this teaching time, he tells one final parable. And it's separate from the other four in this sense. The other four are dealing with the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, right here, right now on earth where we live. But he closes it out talking about the consummation of the kingdom of God. What happens at the end time? What happens when God's going to draw a curtain, drop the curtain down on life as we know it, and brings everything in? What will that be like? Chrysostom who was a 4th century archbishop of Constantinople, he termed this the terrible parable. Gregory the Great in the 6th century said, this is a parable that is to be feared and not expounded. Well, we're going to go into some dangerous waters and we're going to expound on this parable. And it's one that Michael just read to you. And um, if you had to title it, it'd say, The Kingdom is Like a large dragnet. It's like a large dragnet. And if I was probably speaking anywhere but church, I would have David Hicks play the dragnet theme from right now, okay? <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so Jack Webb here, <laughs> nothing but the facts, ma'am. All right, so we're gonna give you nothing but the facts in this message. But if you have your Bibles open, in verse 47, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and it gathered fish of every kind. When it says the word net, it is a word that's only used once in all the New Testament. And there are different kinds of nets. There's some of the smaller nets that fishermen would use when they throw it over the boat. But there is, this one is called a dragnet. Uh, Michael has a lot of experience in this and growing up in Minnesota. Called it a seine, I believe. Is that correct, Michael? It's a seine or dragnet. And the way it is, is built is that there are two sets of rope One part at the very top has got like corks along the top so it will float. The bottom has weights to it so it will drop down. And what will happen is they will take a boat that will go out into the water to carry this huge net. Now, what amazed me is that as they looked into research, researchers have shown that the length of this net could be anywhere from 800 to 900 feet long. That's three football fields in length. It would be the length of it. The height on the sides, the heights would be 10 to 13 feet. And in the center, it's almost a wall of 26 feet. So it can drop down into the water, deep into the water there and along the sides. And what they do is a boat will carry that out and it'll get to a certain point and then it'll turn parallel to the shore. And as it turns parallel to the shore, it begins to move and they drop these lines and they have lines on this side and this side in order to pull that net back. The largest of nets usually require one boat and 16 men. So you could have eight men on each side of this. And so I read all of that from commentaries, but you know, what you really got to do is talk to a real fisherman. And I talked to Michael, and Michael shared with us that when they were doing this, that your key men was you put some men in the waters. And what the men in the waters would do is they'd be making noise and slapping around to keep the fish to stay inside Is there. Is that correct? I listen good. All right, to keep the fish in there. Then they start pulling this net and they drag all of these fish and they bring them and they bring it up. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this large drag net and it pulls in all of these fish and everything else, just brings them on in. And then it says, after that happens, it says, then the men, the fishermen, they sit down and they begin to sort the fish. And so as these fish come in, they begin to sort them. And they take the fish and they sort them between good and bad. The good they put into a container. Good would mean that uh, they're sizable, that you can eat them, or sizable also that we could sell them. We could take it to market. So we put the good ones over here. The bad ones, and that word means decayed or worthless, they look at it and they just throw it over here. And they have no use for those. And they're just going to be destroyed. So I got the good ones, i put in the container over here, I've got the bad ones, and I'm putting them over there. And so they know what they're doing. They're fishermen. They've done this for a living. They know the good ones, they know the bad ones, and they separate them. Then what Jesus did, it was he then took a step further and did a uh, semi-interpretation of what this parable is about. And this is what he says. In verse 49, he says, And so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out, and they'll separate the evil from the righteous, and they'll throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what he's saying is that this net that we have, is it draws people in. The net is like the kingdom of God. It is where the influence of God has gone out. And whether it be through the church, through missionaries, or the gospel has gone out, then all of a sudden this huge net begins to pull everyone who has been face-to-face with the gospel. And, and those who have heard the gospel, seen it preached, whichever, it pulls in as it pulls in all of humanity and brings them close in there. He says there is both good and good And there's bad there. And this relates to the church. Because what the church does. Our responsibility as a church. Is we share the message of Christ. Our goal is to tell people about who Jesus is. And we invite them to come. And to make a decision. And be a part of a church. And and every church is made up of both good and bad. Both useful and useless. And there is no perfect church. And the reason there's no perfect church. Is because there are no perfect people. And It means that within the church, there are some people here that are truly followers of Christ and there are other people that are sitting in pews holding membership cards that have really never made a decision for Christ. And he's saying here that as you pull this in, you'll be gathering them all. you gather them all together. And when you gather them all together, then there'll come that time of judgment where you put the good over here and the bad over here. And he says, it's not the church's job to do that. It's not our job in the church to go down the pew and say, you're in, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're in, you're out. Now, it is our responsibility to be able to look at the actions of people because it says, by their fruits, you will know them. And then we can approach someone and say, man, the lifestyle that you're living is opposite of what God's word has said and talk to him about that. But nowhere can we sit there and say, with assurance, hey, this person is definitely lost. That only decision can only be made by God. And it says here that he will command his angels and they will come and they will separate. And they will separate the true believers from the pretenders. So with that, you take that parable and let me delve into it a little bit and just answer some questions on it. First of all, separation is clear. Separation is clear. The part of this parable is that there will come a time of when the fish are brought in and there will be separation. There will come a time when the curtain on history is dropped down and there'll be a day of judgment and all of us will be brought to shore and there will be a separation of the good and the bad. Now, the angels will be like the fishermen A trained fisherman, when he's going through the fish, he will not have to pick up a fish and look at it and study it and put it up to the light, measure it with his arm, poke around in it. Fishermen know right away, good, 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 bad, 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 good, 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 bad, bad, bad. Same thing's going to be at the judgment. The angels are not going to have to sit there. And when you come before them, they'll go, well, let me see. I've got a mound of documents. I've got to read through. We've got a lot of videotape uh, because you were born, you were living in the 21st century. So we've got a lot of that on video. And we're going to review all of your life. We're going to weigh the balance. And it's going to take a while, but then we're going to make a decision. Not at all. It's just like the fishermen. They're going to know right away. You're in, you're in, you're in, you're out. Good, 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 evil, evil, evil. Follower, 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 pretender, pretender, pretender. Be just like that. Separation is clear. There will be a time, there will be a time when as we're all brought in, there will be a separation. And to separate into two categories, according to what it says here, there'll be good and there'll be evil. Second is judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. He says in verse 50, he says, they'll separate the evil from the righteous and they'll throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may have heard that phraseology. It's used a lot in the New Testament. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is usually not a good thing. It's not a real happy time when there's a whole bunch of weeping. Gnashing of teeth is a word that means to grind your teeth. And that means you're grinding your teeth out of rage. You're grinding your teeth out of anger. What it all means is that it is a horrible and painful fate. It is a horrible and painful fate. Now, when we get to this passage, and when you get there, a lot of times people want to skip over that. Let's skip over the wailing and and weeping and and gnashing of teeth. Let's just move back to, to something else. But but, but we're not because it's in the parable. Let's just talk about it. You see, one of the sad things is if you talk to people who are not believers and they'll talk about who Jesus is, and even when you talk to some believers and talk about who Jesus is, they equate him to like a 60s hippie. Uh, He's got his robe and his Birkenstocks and he's kind of walking around and says, uh, peace, uh, not war. Uh, I love that teaching about the meek will inherit the earth. And then uh, he talks about how we need to humble ourselves. And then we're to be servants of others. And he says that we're supposed to love uh, children. I mean, all that stuff. And that's just such a sweet Jesus, you know? And that's how people look at him. He's a good teacher. He's a kind man. Listen, every bit of that is true. Every bit of that is true. And I don't want to make light of any of those teachings. But if you really want to fully understand who a person is, you need to look at the whole body of work. And you need to take a look at the whole four Gospels and look and say, who is this Jesus? And what was his teaching? Well, when Jesus told this parable, he said there will be a judgment, and judgment will be certain. And so Jesus really makes two statements here that we need to remember. Number one is Jesus talk more about hell than heaven. You can read through all four Gospels and see how many times he talks about heaven and then think how many times he talks about judgment and talks about hell. Now, hell is real. It's real. Now, when it talks about the fires of hell, that could be literal or it could be uh, figurative. But whatever picture it is, it's not good. It's painful. It's a place of torment. And the worst thing about hell is that the presence of God is not there. And so when a person goes to hell, it means they're completely separated from any presence of God, which means there's no love, there's no hope, there's no kindness, there's no sympathy, there's no joy, there's no cheer, there's no appreciation, there is no relief. Just weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. Jesus talked more about hell than heaven. He says, it is a reality. But number two is this. Jesus was very straightforward that there will be judgment for our sins. He's very straightforward on this point. You know, growing up, I heard a lot of uh, what we called hellfire brimstone preachers. Anybody ever heard of any of those? Just raise your hand if you ever heard hellfire brimstone preachers. Yeah, yeah, your britches are still uh, on fire from all that, isn't it? And at churches, what you do, we bring the guys in to be evangelists okay? And then we'd say, and the preachers would tell them, light them up. Man, and all week they'd be laying it out and you'd be just shaking and they'd be bringing it, bringing out the fire, the brimstone, brimstone, preaching about hell and stuff. And and what's happened is over the years, we've sort of satirized those guys and caricatured them and, and kind of made fun of them, put them in movies and other things. And we laugh about them and and the, really, the problem with that is what we've done is that not only have we just satirized or caricatured the individual, but we've weakened the message that they were preaching. Because you see, the message they were preaching, they were taking verses straight out of the Bible. In many of the verses they were taking, they were quoting Jesus Himself. They were quoting Him. And so they weren't just coming up with inflammatory language. They said, hey, this is what our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this is what he says. And what Jesus has said is that there will be judgment for our sins. And he says, hell is the place that's real. I'm just going to give you a quick review. We're going to just walk through. This is like rapid fire. And just out of the book of Matthew, out of all the four gospels, I'm just picking the book of Matthew, these are quotes that Jesus himself said. Ready? Here we go. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Matthew 5:29 If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Matthew 5:30 And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Matthew eight twelve, but many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, they will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew ten twenty eight, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You rather fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew thirteen forty two, and throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the parable today, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping. And and gnashing of teeth Matthew 18:8 eight. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire Matthew 18:9 And if your eye causes you to sin tear it out throw it away it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire Matthew 22:13 a parable Then the king said to the attendants bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth to the Pharisees, Matthew twenty-three thirty-three, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Matthew twenty-five thirty, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Matthew twenty-five forty-one, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now that does not sound like a peace-loving evangelist in Birkenstocks. Do you agree with that? Okay. I'm not sitting here. I'm I'm not sitting here trying to get you all involved. This is what Jesus says. This is, this is what he's preaching. And he says, listen, judgment is going to happen. Judgment is certain. And he's been very consistent in all of his preaching. So you need to ask the question. And I would ask the question, so why is there judgment? So Danny, why do we have, why is judgment? Well, Here's the reason, number three, and that is God's holiness demands judgment. God's holiness demands judgment. You can look at all the different attributes of God, and one of the attributes of God, probably the outstanding attribute of God, is it says God is holy. And because of his holy nature, he has to deal injustice with sinful man. He cannot go against his nature and not punish sin. If he is a God who is holy, he is a God who is righteous, he is a God who is just. And because of that, he has to punish sin. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, the great thing about that verse is the word all. That means every one of us. For all have sinned and every one of us has come short of the glory of God. So that's why there needs to be judgment. Romans five eighteen. the first half of that verse says this. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they came together. When they partook of the fruit which God had forbidden them to eat, it says sin entered the world. And then when Adam committed that sin, we were born with Adam's nature. We have a sin nature. And so we automatically move in and we sin. That's kind of our, our default. And he says, because of Adam's one sin, it brings condemnation for everyone. Every one of us, every one of us is to be judged. And then in Romans 6, 23, well, what does that judgment look like? It says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages is payment. It's what you've earned. You said, okay, so I've sinned. What do I earn with that? You've earned death. Death is separation from God. Physical death is when we feel separated from others here on earth. Spiritual death is when we are separated from God. And so sin is wrong. It deserves punishment. And God's righteousness is this moral standard. And when we violate that standard, then in keeping with God's holiness and righteousness, he acts justly and he punishes the one who sinned. Your sin, my sin, cannot be swept under the rug. God cannot go against his own nature. It's impossible for God to go against his nature. And what's amazing is that, you know, I'll hear people say, well, I just think God is too good, too loving, too compassionate to, to send us anyone to go to hell or to spend eternity in something like that. It just doesn't seem like it's fair. Well, try to put it like this. Let's say that you had a family member and somebody came up and murdered them. I mean, just premeditated, murdered them. And they went to a trial, pleaded guilty, jury saw him guilty, judge saw him guilty. And the judge says, tell you what, we know you're guilty, but we're going to give you 10 days of hard labor. And then you're fine. How do you feel about that? Would that bother you? Tell me, would that bother you? Would you be in an uproar? Would all the news broadcasts be covering that trial? Would that judge, what would happen to that judge? Would people be demanding that he be just barred? Would see someone say, how in the world could he not see all of that evidence and see that? And what just happened was an imperfect man killed another imperfect person, and an imperfect judge gave a compassionate ruling. That we don't think is fair at all. It's not. But yet, what we think should happen is that a perfect God should look on us as imperfect people and put a compassionate ruling on us. When every day, every week, every month, every year of our life, we sin against him. We commit a sin, not just one sin of murder. We're committing sins against him every single day. And as our life adds up with all of these sins, That fly in the face of a holy God, then we just think, well, I think good old God should be compassionate and forgive us. But if somebody murdered a family member of yours, you'd want to get the death penalty right then and there, and you'd be the one that wanted to pull the switch. You can't have it both ways. God, in his nature, has to judge sin. And guess what? We are all guilty. We are all guilty. And so you sit there and you think, okay, it says that there will be judgment. So why is there a separation of good and evil? If, if like we're all evil, that's the fourth and final point. And that is that God's love and mercy necessitates separation. God's love and mercy necessitates separation. You see, look what God has done for us. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Ah, here we go. Out of God's love, God's mercy. His love, says he loved us so much that while we were still sinners, not when we cleaned up our act, while we were still sinners, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. Remember we said, what is it that separates us from God? It's sin. How many of us have sinned? Every one of us has sinned. And God says the wages of sin is death. It's laid out. It's in my word. There has to be death. There has to be blood that is shed. So what he did is said, I'm going to send my son and he will live a perfect life and will be the perfect sacrifice. And he will go to the cross and he will die for our sins and his blood will be shed and his blood will cover all of our sins. And three days later, I'll raise him from the dead and showing that he's got power over sin. He's got power over death. And he provides a bridge to get us to God to become a part of his family. God did that because he loved us. And everybody keeps saying, well, how do you know if God loves us? It's right there on the cross. He's on record for showing how much he loves us just by going to the cross. And so he did this. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. And then a part of that is his mercy. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. you know what he did? Out of his love and mercy, he provided Christ. And then he provided us the opportunity to accept that sacrifice. It wasn't just the fact that Jesus died, but then he gives you and me the opportunity to say, will you accept that sacrifice? It's a grace gift. I'm giving this to you if you receive it. And whenever an individual makes that decision to say, I'm putting myself behind and I'm looking to the Lord to be the savior of my life. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've messed up. I know that I deserve to go to hell. But Jesus has paid the penalty for my sins and because of my love for him and thanksgiving there, I receive him and I accept his gift and I ask him to be the boss, the master, the Lord of my life. And when that happens, there's an incredible exchange begins to take place. And we become a child of God. We become a part of his family. And it says here, by grace, you have been saved. Now let's go back to that to Romans 5:18 verse. In Romans 5:18, in the first half, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but <laughs> here's the great line. But Christ one act of righteousness, dying on the cross, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, we have new life for everyone. Now, let me put it a different way to help it even drive down closer. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin. Remember, he lived a sinless life. To be sin for us. That means he took all the sins of the world and he placed them on Jesus on the cross for the six hours he was suspended between heaven and earth. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to hold on to this, because this just gets even better. Are you ready? At salvation, God takes your sin, and he credits it to Jesus Christ. He said, that's not really fair. It's not, but it's God. And he loves us so much, he's taking your sins and my sins, and he credits it to Jesus' account. And Jesus takes the responsibility for your sins, and he pays the penalty for them. But then he says that we might become the righteousness of God. God then takes the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, and he credits that to our account. And he gives us that righteousness. You know what the result of that is? All your sins have been paid for and God no longer holds them against you because you have trusted Christ as your savior. But even more, God has put to your account the very righteousness of Christ. And his perfect righteousness can cover our corrupt and imperfect lives. And when people trust in Christ, they make an exchange, their sin, for his righteousness. At the cross, your sins were placed on Jesus Christ. At your conversion, his righteousness was placed on you. Does that make sense? At the cross, your sins were placed on Jesus but at your conversion, when you prayed and asked Christ to come into your heart, at that moment, His righteousness came to you and it was credited to you. Doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. First John, first chapter of First John and the first part of, of, uh, First John chapter two, it says, Hey, we will sin. And if we sin and we're faithful and just to confess our sins, He will forgive us. Now, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're not saying we're going to have a perfect life. But the way God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. And there's this great conversion that just took place. So when God looks at a believer, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, the more I thought about this, I said, okay, in the, in the illustration, when they drew the fish in and the, um, and the fishermen, you know, they, they sat down and they, and they were looking at the fish and they said, good one, good one, good one, bad one, bad one. And they could do it really quick. I said, okay, now the angels, when they come, And when you come before them, they're going to separate good and evil. Well, how are they going to know that? Because they're going to see the righteousness of Christ. And so when they see you, and if you're a believer in Christ, they see the righteousness of Christ in you. That's easy. Righteousness of Christ, follower, follower, follower. No righteousness of Christ, evil, pretender, over here, over here. It'll be just like that. And when you make that decision for Christ, it says your sins are forgiven. And you receive the righteousness of Christ. And so what's the result? John 5, 24. Look what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, this is Jesus speaking, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. He has passed from death to life. He doesn't come into the judgment. You've made that decision, you'll spend eternity in heaven with God. There's not that judgment. And so the good, they have the righteousness of Christ. The evil, what they're doing is they're counting on their own deeds, their own good works, their own religious activities. And the Bible says that our righteousness is like nasty, filthy, stinking rags, it's just that old stuff that's, that's wadded up in the corner in your garage that's got a lot of grease and mess on it. And that's what you show before God and say, hey, this is my righteousness. He said, it's not going to get it. And so you get, he gives you an option. He says, either you can rest on Christ or you can rest on your own good works as you approach judgment. Listen, God is the one who's established the ground rules. That's his sovereign right. And when he set the ground rules, it was this, sin results in death. You believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. You reject Jesus, you will face punishment. And so when God created man and woman, he gave them a freedom of a choice. He gave them right there in the garden. Will you follow me? Will you love me? Or will you go your own way? They decided to go their own way. They committed a sin. Once they did that sin, nature came into all of us. And we seem to have this default where at times we want to go our own way and not God's way. But he gave them that choice will you love me or not love me? When he sent his son to die on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Once that's been made known, he gives you a choice. You have the freedom to make that choice to whether to accept that sacrifice or to reject that sacrifice. You know, God never sends anybody to hell. You choose to go there. That's not his desire. And he doesn't drag anybody to heaven. It's your choice to go there. So you've got it right in front of you. It's your choice. Nobody else can make it for you. Mama can't make it for you. your Daddy can't make it for you. I don't care how much your grandmama has been praying for you and your grandfather. They can't make it. And it's good to pray for you, but they can't make that decision for you. You and I have to make that decision ourselves. I made it. It was a summer when I was eight, getting ready to turn Nine. Even at that young age, I understood enough to know that I was a sinner separated from God and made that decision for him. And then hitched my wagon to him and say, I'm going to live for him. And my wagons hit some ruts along the way and some wheels have come off it at times. And I don't live a perfect life, but I have stayed the course knowing that I am his child adopted into his family. And I'm a child of God. And I know for certainty that when I breathe my last breath here, my first breath is in eternity with him. And there's no question about that. And it's not because of any great do's and don'ts I've lived in my life. It's because of what Christ has done on the cross. And because I made the decision, just what he says here, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. And that belief has action to it. And now every one of you here has to make that same decision. And that's why this parable is so fearful on there because it points out the reality of what eternal punishment is like. And nobody needs to go there. And there's no reason for you to go there. And you have the opportunity to make that decision to receive Christ. Now, taking everything that we've said, my greatest concern, living where we live, Is the cultural Christianity that we have. And that is that a lot of people are misguided thinking that they are saved just because they do religious actions or good works. And they think that's enough. There's a Russian proverb that says, Those who've been infected by Christ will never be cured. I want you to listen to this. Those who've been infected by Christ will never be cured. And what that means is when you get an infection, it can go travel through your whole body. And this is a good thing to where it says if you are infected with Christ, he comes into your whole body. The problem is, is a lot of people in um, maybe in, in our community and in other Bible Belt areas, we're not infected with Christ. We're vaccinated with Christ. And what a vaccination is, is you take a little bit of the disease and you place it into a bloodstream and just enough of it comes in there so it will fight the infection so nothing else will spread. And What happens is, is that oftentimes we'll take just a little bit of Jesus. Maybe we'll just join a church. We'll come, we'll come to some of the services, we'll sing some of the songs, we'll even drop some money in a mission in the offering plate, maybe even go on a mission trip. We'll just vaccinate a little bit of Jesus, but we don't want it to infect our whole life. And we don't allow him to go in and completely change our life. Just a little bit of a just a little bit. And so I walk out of here, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I've got just a little bit of Jesus there. But you see, you're being deceived. Because Jesus says, anybody who's going to follow me, they got to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And when he says, make me Lord of your life, that means he's got access to everything in your life. And so the greatest fear that I have for our community is have got a lot of people walking around that are vaccinated that think they're saved, and they're not. We need to be totally infected with the person of Christ. And just to have him completely have control in all of our lives. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It just means we're going to follow his guidance and follow his direction. And you see, I can't tell you if you've made that decision or not. That's what this parable says. At the end of time, the angel's going to come and they're going to say, follower or pretender. But you know deep down in your heart whether you are or not. And so the question that I think all of us need to wrestle with is not just second coming when it's going to happen but what if I should die today? And I died today and every other person in the world who died this same day stepped before the judgment and the angels were there and they were separating people like fish and they were giving you direction. What would you hear? As you moved up that line, what would you hear? Would you hear, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in. He put you over here. Or would you hear, depart from me. I never knew you. And then send you over there. We each need me to make that choice. It's my prayer. And as you think of this parable, you get these things right with God. So that you know that not only are you living on purpose for him while you're breathing here on earth but that you will also spend eternity with him when you complete this life on earth. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the clarity of your word. I thank you for your love and for your mercy. Lord, we are sinners who do not deserve salvation in heaven. We deserve to spend eternity separated from you. We understand that. But out of your incredible love and mercy, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And so, Lord, I'm praying now that each person here will take what we have talked about and let your Holy Spirit prick their heart, convict their heart, and then give them either an assurance that, yes, I am a child of God, Yes, I know I've been adopted into his family. I know I've been born again. And this is a message that encourages me to know that I'm going to stay the course. And I'm so thankful for it. But then, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will convict lives that know that they really have never made that decision. That they know that all they're doing is just like a vaccination. They're just kind of playing the game and straddling a fence. And that through that conviction in their heart, that they today would say, Lord, I want to get this right with you. I want to get this straight. I want to receive you. I want you to come into my life. And I pray right now, Lord, if they feel that way, that they pray and they ask you to come into their heart and to save them. And then they're able to kind of drop that anchor and and whether it's to write a note in their Bible or put something in a journal or somewhere where they'll always remember and say it was on this day, this day, And I quit playing the game, and I said, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to walk with you. Thank you, Father, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.